This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, friends. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Jared Stacy again. He was on episode number 76, and he emailed me, and he was like, you know, dude, I've changed my mind on some things, and I want to talk to you about it. Now, Jared is getting his PhD in conspiracies, like how they form, how they start. And last time we talked over a year ago, him and I had some disagreement on January 6th and the evangelical complicity in that. And then he's like, you know what? No, I've been doing some more research. I think my mind's been changed. So I brought him on to do a deeper dive of just what is actually happening behind the scenes in this evangelical world that is directly connected to Trump and the insurrection in January 6th. Listen, I know for some of you, you might be kind of tired of hearing about this, but you shouldn't be. Okay, you shouldn't be. We are in the middle of a historical moment. This is stuff that will, will be written about in the history books. You need to understand what's happening. You must be informed. You must be. So please don't write off this episode because it's another quote unquote Christian nationalist episode. The reason why we cover this stuff so much is because it is effective and it's working behind the scenes, frankly, to install authoritarian reactionary Christians, as David Gushy would say, that will do a lot of damage to our democracy. And Jared is someone who has done a lot of digging on this, a lot of research. I think it's really important to hear what he has to say. So I really appreciate you listening. As always, friends, if you want to support the work that we do, we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people as they renegotiate their faith. Donations make this work possible. We have no Patreon account. We have no subscription option. Everything that you get, you get completely paywall free, which is every piece of content that we make. Nothing is hidden because we want to help people who are navigating their faith and not have them worry about paying money to get the help that they need. So we rely on community donations to make this work possible. You can click on the link in our show notes. All donations are tax deductible. And if you like the episode, please feel free to share it. Sharing our content helps other people know that they're not alone as they're navigating their faith. 
Hi, my name is Mary, and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a monthly donor to the New Evangelicals. I'm really thankful for the work they're doing, and I think that there is a really important job to continue. That's why I offer my support between the pandemic, Donald Trump, the dehumanization of the LGBTQ community. I just think we really need to reevaluate what we're doing as a church, as evangelicals, as new evangelicals. So yeah, glad to be a part of this community and love the work. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Jared Stacy. Talk to you all later on. Jared Stacy, you actually reached out to me to have a conversation. I, now the I last did. the last time you were on, I, I pulled it up here because I'm 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 all about the research, was a little over a year ago, July 18th, 2022, episode number 76. We called it Larry Boy and the Conspiracy Weed with Jared Stacy. That's a good one. Yep. Um, you mentioned I'm reading a little bit from our, our description, but you're a former pastor, you're a current researcher of conspiracy theories. So we talked a lot about some of the overlap there. Right. And then recently you reached out to me. I'm gonna read you an excerpt from your email for the yep. audience to hear. And this is when I said, Ooh, I want to get Jared back on. You said Tim, this whole thing was spurred by me telling you I've changed my mind about just how involved, quote, evangelicalism was in the election fraud scheme and in, in the political support for Trump at January 6th. And then you give me some reasons. So yep. you are someone who, former pastor, mm-hmm. started studying at, a, at a, a high level, on a PhD level, conspiracy theories. And even over the past year, you've changed your mind on the maybe complicity of American evangelical broadly and in this current moment. So we're going to unpack all of that. Why don't you go ahead? I don't, I don't want to speak for you. Why don't you give us a very quick introduction to who you are? Yeah. So I was raised in Tampa Bay, Florida. I'll give a shout out to my hometown. Um, yeah. I grew up in fundamentalism really and gradually made my way into more mainstream evangelicalism. And so yeah. I was a pastor, studied in uh, in New Orleans, and then went and served in New Orleans and then near D.C. But I'm here. I've been in Aberdeen, Scotland, uh, which has been great for the last three years uh, here in the Divinity School, uh, studying with some incredible people. Mm. So it's been a huge change, um, not just moving from being a pastor to a researcher, but the cultural change from being an, an outsider uh, being an expat and kind of watching America from a distance has also yielded a lot of clarity. Um, and I realized too, that just getting distance is always good. So yeah, that that's a little bit about me, um, kind of where my circles yeah. and places are from and what I've been up to the last three years. So let, let's start here with this conversation. Yep. A year ago, we had a, a talk mm-hmm. and you emailed me saying, I've changed my mind on some things. Where were you a year ago? And then why don't you kind of outline, maybe you, you mentioned that, that there are three reasons, maybe outline yep. your big concerns and what changed your mind. And then we'll dig into them. Yeah. So if your listeners, if you go back and listen to our original conversation, you and I had a really good disagreement. And this is, I mean, your listeners know this, but you always model like disagreement really well. You really do. And you made a statement about January 6th being, oh, this is, this is an evangelical problem. And uh, mm. I wasn't offended by that, but I, I was like, well, let's, let's maybe unpack that more and, and, and parse it and give it some nuance. And the reason that I did that at the time was because my yeah. perspective and experience of January 6th was, was actually very, very localized. Mm. So I was in a community where buses were in church parking lots to head to DC, right? So there was a proximity to January 6th 
Um, but at the same time, uh, I also was trying to parse, okay, well, just who counts as evangelical? Can we really say that all the people yeah, there right, right. were evangelicals? And, and then I, what changed was I, I started to ask a different question. I started to ask, what if the issue is not how many of those people were evangelicals? What if the question was how many of those ideas, how many of those, that, that, that rhetoric did evangelicalism promote? Mm -hmm. And when I dove into the history, when I dove into how we define evangelicalism differently, what became very clear to me was that there is a broader understanding of evangelicalism that was actually very successful in doing what it was trying to do and manifested itself on January 6th. And so that was a completely reorienting thing for me that actually has some theological roots there because again, all this effort to kind of defend or repair evangelicalism, which originally was me, we have to repair this. We have to figure out how to fix it. I'm not there anymore. Yeah. And, and it's not Mm. like this nonchalant, like, Hey, just like let it crash and burn. Um, Theologically speaking, I'm, I'm kind of the point we can always start over with something new and with something fresh and not have to worry about repairing what was so clearly determined by something other than Jesus. And so there's those, those kind of two strains that I think we can get into more, but that's yeah. a short explanation of how I changed my mind. Well, I mean, listen, I am, um, I feel this and, and you seem like someone who is willing to, Hey, maybe I'm wrong on something. Right. And listen, I've been wrong plenty (laughs) of times uh, on social media. So, uh, and I, I hear you on this, you know, because I was originally, when I first saw January 6th happen live on TV, I was like, what is going on? Like my, my mind couldn't process what I was seeing. Right. We had the, the Christian flag, we had Bibles, we had Christian language everywhere. Um, and as I started digging and kind of putting pieces together, I was like, you know, and I'm not the academic here. You are. So I trust your research way <laughs> over mine. But I was like, something doesn't add up. And I think one of the moments more recently that only solidified just how evangelical January 6th was, right. was um, Straight White Americans Jesus, uh, their their series with Matthew yeah. Taylor and uh, Bradley Onishi, you know, yep. talking about uh, the New Apostolic Reformation and how deeply embedded some mm-hmm. of these people were to get prayer things organized in the Jericho March that yep. yeah kind of preface this. So I I share your sentiment that I have only become over time more convinced right. Uh, right. that actually we don't understand how deeply embedded this stuff was. The question I have, and we'll dive into some of those details in a minute, let's get back to this evangelical term. It is yeah. a slippery term, right? I mean, I've read yeah. enough books now to know that a lot of scholars who are in this world are like, yeah, we don't really have like a a fixed foundational definition because there's no gatekeeper officially of evangelicalism. There's no official Pope or, you know, priest or something, right? Everyone's kind of fighting for who gets Mm -hmm. to own the label. And I would say over the past, I would say the majority of the time, the term evangelical has been in the American psyche. Conservatives have kind of owned the label. So that that's a fair point, but it is hard to nail down. What are your thoughts on even how we talk about evangelical for this conversation? Yeah. So that's, that's the question. And I love that you asked it. And yeah. I, I, I think rather than 
because I, I want to go, I want to go full bore with it and really get into the details. But I think probably what's easiest yeah. for us all to admit is just what you said is that it's a highly contested term that is always sometimes appropriated um, because it carries a lot of authority with it. And what's really interesting is that that happens from multiple directions, right? You have, you have from the top political pundits, right? Who want to get their handles on this voting block from the bottom up, you have people like the new apostolic reformation who historians traditionally have not included charismatics fully in this gate, in this city, in these walls. So there's all of these like different approaches and you could also say, hey, like there's these four, you know, doctrinal things that define an evangelical, the cross, what they believe about the Bible, uh, what they believe about activism, and then how they how they come to faith in Jesus, right? Like all of those things that makes an evangelical. Well, the problem is, is that when you take that definition to history, it doesn't explain why evangelicalism was white and black, why it was divided along lines of race, right? So theology yeah. Particular theology that is it's 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 still really prone to miss what history is actually doing. So here's where I'm at. Here's where I'm at with the term. Um, the term is not worth contesting and fighting over and appropriating. And the only way to deal with the damage it's caused, I think, is actually to to give it up. And I wouldn't use it in an American context. That's a contextual thing. And and yet, do you I'm know? Not, uh, do you, do you know what podcast you're on, Jared? Do you know what the name of our podcast <laughs> yeah, the new is? Evangelical, right, right, right. Yeah, and and that's and that's kind of the thing is like what here's here's what evangelical the label has become though. It has actually become a shelter that maybe well-meaning people, but confused people, we have started to use this as a shelter to keep us from an encounter with Jesus. And that is ironically one of the most evangelical things that evangelicals have been about, right? Like, are you born again? But what happens when identifying as an evangelical actually becomes a way to keep that encounter away? And, and so right. if, it, if it's functioning like that, if it's this way of keeping questions and accountability away, then really what it's doing is it's actually keeping God <laughs> away. And so any kind of newness to evangelical has to be first repentance. I mean, that's, that's Mm. evangelical in, in, in the truest sense of the word. It's not about conformity to a tribe. It's not about satisfying gatekeepers. Um, We're really kind of saying like, Hey, if, if to be evangelical after January 6th means, are you willing to live without the label? And if you're not, then maybe there's something you're still hanging on to as Mm. justification not not before me, not before you, not before anyone who might judge it, but really for before Jesus to say, "Well, you don't understand, Jesus. I'm I'm a part of the good guys. I'm I'm with the good people." Right. And yeah. That's not my call to make. That's not anyone's call to make. So, yeah. you know, part of what did this and put me on this was looking at the label and then looking at all the the labels that Christians have gone by. Like even Christian. Mm. That was not a name invented by the church until they started to appropriate it and uh, and embrace the subversiveness of being called a Christiani, which was a political term. And it meant that you were identifying with Christ as an insurrectionist. And so right. there's a lot of irony in what we're talking about here, 
because that yeah. label in early Rome meant you were being labeled in their political thought structure, which is really ironic and maybe paradoxical because now to call yourself evangelical in some ways, um, you have to deal with how that label was involved with January 6th, especially for people who yeah. aren't willing to parse it. And I don't blame them if they're not willing. You saw the Christian imagery. Yeah. You saw the Christian symbolism. If you're not a practicing Christian, yep. why would I expect you to listen to my no true Scotsman defense of what well, you don't understand. Those weren't the real evangelicals. I can't expect anybody to do that. And so I'm not going to. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to just for the audience out there, remind you that we've had two different guests on this podcast. We had Isaac Sharp, who wrote the book, the other evangelicals. And then we had uh, uh, Jesse Curtis, uh, who wrote the book, the myth of colorblind Christianity. Two yep. very important books that outline pretty much what you just said, Jared, yes. uh, that that really, and I'm going to sum it up really uh, succinctly, yep. evangelicalism has morphed. And if you look at the history, they've always grown or created new boundaries to keep someone else out and someone else in. So maybe there was a time when theological correctness was really important. But then when, when black evangelicals came in saying, hey, we agree theologically, but also this racism issue is a thing, then they drew new boundaries saying, well, we can't get too political or, or we can't really fight racism too hard or maybe the answer now is colorblindness, right? And so you can actually see the morph over time of trying to protect quote unquote right theology, then like right uh, political uh, takes, and then who's the in-group, who's the out-group. So you're right. The history of evangelicalism, specifically in the American context, I right. can't speak really far yep. beyond that, no, that's a good way of saying is a history of, of certain people always creating new boundaries and really moving the goalposts mm -hmm. to determine who's a true Christian or not, which is why personally at this point, and this was not me in the beginning of this work. I, at first I was like, oh no, what if people at the Gospel Coalition think I'm not a real Christian? Yeah. I don't care anymore <laughs> because their goalposts are always going to move until you do exactly exactly what they tell you to do. That's why right now on Twitter, there are people who are like, oh, pronouns in bio. They, they, they write you off as not a Christian simply because you put your pronouns in your bio, right? Yep. So, the, so the goalposts are always moving. Yep. So with, with that behind us and kind of in the in the air of this conversation, you outlined three different reasons why you changed your mind about how involved evangelicalism was really with the whole Trump thing leading up to January 6th. The first one, I'm going to just go down the list and we'll unpack them. You said, yeah, no, first, great. evangelicalism had a hand in constructing and maintaining a powerful political network called the Council for National Policy. This is a very important piece, and I need to preface this conversation, friends. I know that some of it might ring bells of like, oh, they almost sound a little conspiratorial. The difference we'll that. is that people yeah. like myself and or Jared and others, Catherine Stewart, have the receipts for what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, we're not we're not we're not trying to distort things. These are people and places and institutions who exist right now. So Jared, go ahead. Why don't you unpack for us why this was your first reason? Yeah. So um as a as a pastor inside evangelicalism, right? Like I I had a particular story about the tradition I was in. And a part of that story mm -hmm. was about the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention. And that is yep. it's a it's a it's a salvation story for the SBC, um, where uh, Paige Patterson, Paul Pressler meet in this cafe in New Orleans. And I, I don't I don't need to get into all, but it, it became almost a myth, uh, especially when both of those men were kind of implicated in abuse scandals in the SBC, which kind of highlighted, hey, this whole 
conservative takeover and restoring conservative theology also had this underbelly of sexual abuse that is still racking the SBC. Well, everyone kind of knows that story, that myth of the conservative resurgence. What happened almost at the same time was someone by the name of Ronald Reagan was elected president with significant help from the SBC, also Jerry Falwell, all of the, you know, the moral majority evangelicals. Okay. This, this particular type of evangelical. And what they did after Reagan was elected is they consolidated, right? So they brought all this, this power that that they had mobilized. They brought it together and formed an institution. Now here's where it's going to sound conspiratorial, but here's where I'd say, look, they did what is normal in our political system. They founded the council for national policy to be on the right, what the Council of Foreign Affairs was on the left. And so what's really interesting is for all the conservative paranoia and anti-Semitism related to George Soros, the, the same dynamic of billionaire donors is on our political right as well. So there, there's not just anti-Semitism, but there's also hypocrisy. Because when you start to look at the history of the Council for National Policy, which again, it's part of the normal political partisan life of America. Uh, right. the, the intersection of donor money and with Reagan paramilitary organizations, uh, James Dobson's council or family, I forget the name of it, but James Dobson's organization um, is affiliated with the, with the CNP. So what you're really doing is we're not talking about a conspiracy theory. We're talking about network analysis. We're talking about who knows who. We're talking about who platforms who. We're talking about how that together kind of works out propaganda, ideologically propaganda for a particular policy that they want to see enacted in American life. Um, And so the CNP really does represent three things. Their values are religious and economic freedom. Those actually go hand in hand, which is really interesting, right? So you're linking free market capitalism with religious freedom. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a free market, then you don't have free religion. There's a whole lot that we don't have time to get into there, but that's how they understand it. The second thing is a strong national defense. Okay. Um, so the underbelly of that, of course, is the state's practice of violence, which we saw on January 6th. And then the third thing is we have, again, religious and economic freedom, national defense, and then a very vague, but very important Judeo-Christian morality. Again, we don't have time to get into that either, but <laughs> yeah. these, these are the three things that uh, that the CMP kind of is built on, but who built it? Paige Patterson was deeply involved in building it. Paul Pressler of the mm. SBC. Okay, so those two names, but also Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind books. So we're getting into all of these these network things. But what I didn't realize in this first point was how deeply invested and committed these evangelical figures were to consolidating political power. When I was a pastor. I kind of, the story I told myself was that people were getting lost and caught up in political power. Mm. But what I actually came to realize was that evangelicalism in the 1980s, and and some of your readers may listen and say, oh, this guy's completely naive. Welcome. Glad you turned on the light. Finally. Um, But but hey, but maybe there's someone else out there who's thinking the way I am. And we're all in this journey kind of figuring out, hey, like I didn't realize this and I did. So hopefully we're modeling a little bit of uh, generosity along with curiosity. but the story I, I told myself just really wasn't accurate. It wasn't just that the moral majority started to get politically active. They started to institutionalize their power in a way that many evangelicals, myself included, are now unraveling the difference between the proclamation of the gospel and conservative propaganda. Those are two, those two things don't have to hang together, but they do. And they're confused. 
So there's a uh, lot there. Absolutely. I didn't realize the depth and, and, the, and, and the concentration of power that wasn't just about evangelicals linking up arms with senators. I'm talking about deep money coming together with powerful media conglomerates, right? This sounds conspiratorial, but again, it's just a concentration of power. Uh, and, and we have to be able to narrate that and talk about that somehow. Uh, and we don't have to go to conspiracy theory uh, to do it, but we have to be able to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 100%. Um, in these groups, you know, the uh, Council for National Policy, groups like Turning Point USA are well are well yeah. connected to them. Charlie Kirk is, is part of that world. And right. listen, um, a lot of these organizations, and I know this because I just did some research on them for a project that we're working on. But they have some serious money. I mean, they yeah. have billionaire backing who yep. will donate a million, two million, five million dollars without even thinking about it. Um, for example, Turning Point in 2022 did 55 million dollars in funding right. uh, in a year. Uh, the, the Daily Wire claims 150 million dollars in uh, in an annual run rate. They claim to publish 250 pieces a day. Um, these are massive organizations, and the money comes from somewhere. Now, certainly people can donate and many do. Many right. donate to, to Turning Point and Prayer You. But to get them off the ground, you need a pretty big influx of cash, especially considering how young mm -hmm. some of these organizations are. Right? I mean, Turning Point just celebrated, I think, 10 years. Charlie Kirk maybe is 30 now. Uh, Prager U, same thing, Daily Wire. So they've certainly grown so quickly. And the CNP, is one of those organizations that connects them to money, but also advocates for policies right. as well, right? right? And I think that this is kind of the crux of what you're saying, Jared, is that a lot of us who grew up in these spaces, it was just this kind of thinking, it was just in the air. It yeah. was just in the air of what we breathed. And when we got out of it, we noticed that that air was a little dirtier than we thought, <laughs> but we just thought maybe it was a natural pollutant. Yeah. You know, like, hey, there isn't someone piping this stuff in. But it turns out the more you dig, the more you're like, oh, someone set this stuff up a while ago and it has been yeah. kind of pumping it into the air ever since. Yep. And now it's just normalized as this is what Christians, this is what the true Christians, how they vote, how they think, what they advocate for. Um, and so I, I think your call out here about the CNP is very important because – a lot of those people don't want to be in the public mm -hmm. limelight. They don't want to be these public figures with millions of followers. They are happy to work behind the scenes working to, for example, put the right justices in front of Trump right. at the right time, right. right? To make sure that 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 those three people get elected to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I'll put the link that you sent me, um, Jared, in the show notes so people can see that we have sources. Yeah. We're not just you know saying things out of thin air. But I do agree with you. A lot of people really sleep on the the so-called war chest right. that really funds a lot of what we're seeing today. Well, and that's, and that's the difficulty. Like, again, let me connect it to some of your listeners. You know, we were in these spaces. You remember every election season in the church? Did you call it a vestibule or a lobby? I, I went a lobby. A lobby yeah. Come on, I, we were I, modern, Jared. I, a vestibule. What the what the hell I, was that? I, I, I you know, I, I kind of went a little progressive. I started calling it a lobby. Um, but you know, what every election season, what did they put? They they always put the voter guide in there, right? They always put the always guide. now always. What if what if I told you that that a key member who published those voter guides, right, was a part of the CMP. Right. So when you look at George Barna and all the, you know, Barna is this name that is really associated with data for evangelicals. Wait, wait, are you going where I think, sorry, pause. Are you going where I think you're going with George Barna? Is he part of yeah, the CMP? There's, there's I, I don't know if he's a member. One, one of the, I, I, to show receipts, here's the book. It's called Shadow Network. And what's, it's by Ann Nelson. Now, here's what's really interesting. Even the title, 
as someone who researches conspiracy theories, I'm like, I wish you would have chosen a different title. See, the, the problem is sometimes right, right. When, when people are studying this and they don't really have categories to understand it, it does sound and come out sounding conspiratorial. But when you're told the yes. story of here's how denominational leaders were active with Republican operatives, and it has to be told alongside the left too. Like this is just normal American politics in the neoliberal moment, right? This is just very normal. So I want yeah. to tell your readers, like a lot of all everything we're talking about is just really publicly available information that sometimes when people don't understand how politically active and uh, and and integrated evangelicalism is. Um, there's no other way to talk about it except in terms of some like evil conspiracy theory. But one thing I've learned about conspiracy theories <laughs> right. is that they don't really play nice on the right or the left. They, they play kind of, it's a human thing. Uh, and so, yeah, like a lot of mm. what we're talking about voter information data, there's, there's a whole argument that she sets forth and, and a network that she kind of describes in this book that uh, alongside with the link kind of goes to that. So yeah, the voter guides, all of that stuff, uh, the family research council, which is a part of the CMP, Tim Perkins, all of that kind okay. of went a hand. And, and so what you described about breathing the air, that's the result of propaganda, propaganda from above and propaganda from below. Like we were conformed into a particular image, right? That in order to fit in, yeah. you had Jesse Curtis on. So he told you, right? Like evangelical churches after civil rights were like, oh, the fastest way to grow a church is to reach people <laughs> inside of their same socioeconomic <sighs> status. And, and guess what? That yes. was propaganda because as soon as you come into a church where it's, and guess what? As a pastor, that was the metric that I was held accountable to. Like we have to create homogeneous mm -hmm. units to grow this thing as fast as possible. I didn't have the tools. Yeah. I didn't have the categories to like, I didn't have the history to think about that. It was just, Oh, well, we want to grow the church. So Here's the technique to do it. Right. What I didn't realize was that totally. again, in this moment with Trump, it's meaningful when propaganda from the top also meets propaganda from below, where the very people that listen mm. to Christian talk radio hear Chris Tomlin, and then on the way home from work, listen to Charlie Kirk. When those two things are associated, and then when your church plays it on Sunday and everyone looks like you and votes like you, that propaganda is really yeah. powerful. It's very powerful and it's very cool. uh, uh no 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 <laughs> doubt it is powerful. It is and you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna preach to the choir. A lot of the audience who's here yeah. are people who grew up in those spaces and they're probably thinking about, yeah. I mean, listen, I I tell this story often, but I was at the March for Life. I <laughs> held all the signs, I had the shirts, I was part of that culture of you know what it meant to be a christian was to be like this countercultural person but it was countercultural in all the wrong ways like like now i'm learning that countercultural is actually a very good thing as christ followers but i was actually in some ways more part of the culture than you ever yeah. would think about like yeah. when it came to capitalism or like how we how we voted right? right but when it came to like these other things that were actually causing harm that's when we were supposed to be countercultural right. it's like wait it's so backwards yeah. right so so the second part that that, that you you actually tie this into the, your second you know big lie you say yeah. um or i'm sorry uh, your second reason you, you say the big lie which is we're talking about january 6th and the election being stolen all that stuff was constructed right. through trump's presidency within the cnp network so un unpack that are you saying that essentially the yeah. cnp that whole institution and the connections were a part of trump um or or, or kind of helped trump plan you know his, his his master plan to overturn the election yeah i mean I, like it's a part of it 
And I think we can like, you know, say okay. it's complex enough that you have the Oval Office meetings with people like Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff, who's a part of the indictment. But there are also people on that indictment, Sidney Powell, for example, who gave multiple speeches at the CMP, um, particularly about the threat mm. of the deep state. And when when you watch some of those talks in context, she's talking mm. particularly in the immediate, hey, this is what's going on in 2019 in Trump. Trump's administration. When it, when 2020 happens, early 2020, uh, you started to see, Hey, here's how, here's how big tech is going to disrupt the election. These were talks that were being given Mm. in, in this room. Now, I don't know who is, I don't know who is in the room, but these were CMP gatherings. And when you look at some of the membership, um, the, some of the biggest radio networks that syndicate Charlie Kirk, Prager, others, people who are part of kind of, making sure this election narrative and contested thing is out there. Um, this is all a way to talk about these relationships and these concepts. So uh, a way to talk about it is like, it was astroturfed, right? As a pastor, I kind of experienced the election mm. fraud narrative as, you know, like people must be like getting this through Facebook and through memes and just kind of listening to these people uh, on the, on the radio and through the internet. And that's true. But astroturfing is a fake grassroots movement. That's what that refers to. And so what appears mm. like sometimes what appears like this groundswell movement of, Hey, we have to pray for our president. We have to defend election integrity, right? Cause that's what it's called. Election integrity. Um, we yeah, have to do right. all those things that that wasn't a grassroots movement that that was a intentional. And again, the indictments are showing this, right? That, that Trump and his administration yes. inside made use of this conspiracy theory as an actual conspiracy. <laughs> uh, so Sidney Powell is a part of this indictment uh, in Georgia. Yes. She was giving speeches in the CMP uh, within Trump's presidency, talking about the danger of the deep state, all the rhetoric that we heard. This stuff was getting not just workshopped, but it was the, maybe I should say it was the framing narrative of, Hey, this is where we're heading. The deep state is going to oust Trump. We have to do something about it. Um, and that, that was in place and getting worked on. At, at these in these levels in these institutions um, before we kind of heard about it and felt it in an acute immediate sense. Well, I, I remember um, recently Roger Stone. There was a video that came out of him, you know, getting content ready before the election actually yep. happened. I believe it was like it was very close. Yeah, it was before the election, and they already had their game plan. Mm-hmm. in place of like how they were going to position it and how they were, they were going to talk about the election being stolen and election integrity. And you're right. And uh, what's tough is that because these things are so hidden, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes they can appear just spontaneous like this. Like, for example, let's talk about the insurrection when it yeah. actually happened. The immediate narrative from so many people was, oh, this is just a spontaneous group. This just yeah. ca- kind of happened organically. There was nothing behind what actually formed it, right? right? Now, even back then, I knew, I'm like, guys, where were you watching the Jericho rally? Like, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and where do you think this rhetoric leads? So I still saw it as as not nearly as sophisticated as I do now, but I was thinking to myself, well, when you have millions of people tuning in to Trump on Twitter or to Charlie Kirk or whoever saying that you know this election has been stolen and that we, we, we have to fight like hell to take our country back, where do we think it leads? Yeah. But the more I'm digging, and I would like your thoughts on this, the more I'm like, actually, there were some people in positions of power, both in the evangelical Christian sense and the political sense, mm-hmm. who were kind of stirring the pot before January 6th. Yeah. And I think when it ha- when when it happened, they were like, good, 
Yeah, I'm glad this is happening. Yeah. This is kind of the plan is like, let's just get people so angry that they actually tried to, you know, organically, quote unquote, overturn the election process. And then we'll be all all good, I guess. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I've read the January 6th House Commission <laughs> report, right? Uh, and I've I've read the indictment yeah. and, and I've read indictments of people who've been charged for going onto Capitol grounds and committing acts of violence. And what, you know, again, for example, when you and I first talked about this and, uh, and I was like, well, no, hold on, let's be careful. Not, not everyone there was evangelical. Let's take, let's take proud boys and oath keepers, for example. Now I've changed my mind on that because you know what, when you listen to some of the prayers that oath keepers and proud boys prayed, they could fit in most nominal evangelical spaces. Okay. Um, so I'll I'll leave that aside, whether or not they identify as an evangelical at this point is, is actually not the point. So the, but the second thing is is that when you look at those paramilitary groups, private military groups, uh, they were training in the event. I mean, there's communications between their leaders that they were training that in the event that Trump declared martial law, that they would again, act as a peacekeeping force. And Trump was prepared to invoke the insurrection act, uh, as a way to maintain the president. Yes. And so, yes, yes like, it, the question we're asking, was this crazy town? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the, it, it wasn't organic. It, it, it wasn't just people being, some people were being misled. Some people were sympathetic to something they didn't realize was happening, but there was also, sure. there's also this way of talking about becoming an accessory to something that is much more dangerous and intentional. And that is precisely the point. Um, and so, yeah, like this is all very, like, I I'm agreeing with your point just adding, adding some teeth to it. Uh, that was exactly the case on that day. Yeah. When, when I heard that, I forgot, I forgot when or where that, you know, that, that there were some proud boy leaders who were like ready pretty much to step in as, as Trump's paramilitary essentially to maintain quote unquote order. I thought to myself, seriously, I thought, holy shit. Like we were that people often say, oh, what would have happened? The, 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 our democracy wasn't at risk. Hell yeah, it was, bro. Like, where yeah. have you been? Have you not been listening to what they've been saying? And then when, when you tie that into some of the bigger tent issues, like the the redoubt movement that's right. happening in the uh, Pacific Northwest, right? We have a bunch of people who are armed to the teeth. They're ready for a civil war, mm-hmm. almost inviting it. They want to secede from the union. Yep. They want to make literally their own states. There are people who have submitted legislation to form their own state. I think it was called like, like, like the free people state of Washington, something like that. When that's happening and then, and they're all tied into these, you know, um, um, what do they call uh, m- m- militia yeah. organizations? Yeah. They're all tied in. They're all online. They're all communicating with each yeah. other. Of course, we were close to losing our democracy for yeah. crying out loud, well, right? And I think, I think, right. oh, good. No, yeah. I, I was just, I just putting, putting another handle on that. That even, even the DOD and the Department of Homeland Security in 2020 came out with a warning that said the greatest threat is not Antifa; it's white supremacist terror. It's domestic terror. So we're not, we're not, yes. We're not wrong in the like the government even saw it. Uh, so it, there's something to be said for that. Well, I, I and I think this is what what makes all of this for me so incredibly dangerous is that in particular, and I always beat this drum, and I will never stop beating this drum. Right wing media has been so complicit mm-hmm. in creating narratives that are are only in support of that kind of frankly, extremism. Yeah. And that's the only word mm-hmm. I can think of 
you know, for, for, for that label. Um, for example, um, Ali Stuckey did a over hour long interview with someone named Julie Kelly. She claims to be a reporter uh, mm. talking about the quote truth about January 6th, where she cast, she tries to cast all of us doubt. Maybe it was, it, it was the police who started it. These were just good people. You know, all the classic talking points. Yeah. Ali Stuckey, who is not a small name, platformed her mm-hmm. sympathetic to her cause. Me and someone else did a three hour long response yeah. podcast going <laughs> through it line by line, debunking the bullshit. Yeah. yeah. We had to, because it was like I'm thinking, like, what what world are you living in? What data are you driven by? And so I think what 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 is new to this conversation, because look, I mean, throughout American history, we, we've had things that are crazy happen in the country. What is new is a uh people trying to storm our Capitol building, trying to legitimately stop an election certification process with a former president encouraging his vice president to do that. And if not, he might die. And they literally brought gallows for the guy. Right. So that's definitely new. The social media aspect is incredibly new with a lot of these neo-Nazi groups and white supremacist groups finding each other again, thanks to the internet and websites like Gab and Rumble that claim to be free speech havens, which is really just a front for for white domestic terrorism, frankly. And then you have this right-wing media world that is heavily funded that even though in the grand scope of, 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 of their reach, it's not reaching every single American. Mm-hmm. But when you look at like, okay, who are the top DJs in talk radio right now out of any, any genre? It's like last time I checked, it's like seven out of 10 of them are right wing commentators. Mm-hmm. It's like Howard Stern and then like five right wing commentators and like some sports dude and then like one progressive and then two more that are right wing commentators. Yeah. So so they have truly quickly created an entire almost subculture and sub network, right, where they're mm-hmm. able to disseminate whatever the, the 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 rhetoric is at that time, including yep. the election stuff. Now, here's my question for you, Jared, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into your third reason. My question for you is, what do you think happens with the Republican Party? And here's my point about that, and I'll hand it back over to you. I watched the RNC debate. Me, I live streamed it on YouTube, and we, we kind of – I gave some commentary. And here's what I see happening right now. You really have a, a massive split or a massive war happening in the, in the RNC. You have these quote unquote establishment types like Chris Christie, maybe, Mm -hmm. for example, maybe even Mike Pence, who are like, hey, you know, like, yeah, but Trump did crazy. We have to lower the temperature. This is unrealistic. Also, I'm pro-life. I'm more pro-gun, et cetera. Right. Okay. And then you have people who are like, those people are rhinos. They're establishment types. They're big, you know, they're they're paid off by their super PAC types, right? And that's people like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy is one of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, Trump was one of them. DeSantis is trying to play that card, although he's failing miserably. And then you have this right-wing media empire that is supporting the farthest right candidate that they possibly can, right? Like Turning Point, for example, is like, Chris Christie is a rhino. We yeah. need more of Vivek. We need more of that in my in in, in in you know the world. And then last thing I'll say, I know I'm kind of going, yeah. but just no, I'm, trying to set, 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 I'm trying to set the stage for the audience. Then you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, mm-hmm. right? Who less than two years ago was censured by her own party in part and the Democratic Party, who is now essentially second in command in the house she's been part of nick fuentes's rallies he's a far white holocaust denying supremacist frankly genocidal maniac like i stand by every single word of that statement and so i'm like whoa like things are changing quickly Mm -hmm. and now marjorie taylor green is being called an establishment type because of like of of her um of her positioning being that close to kevin so 
based on your work as someone who is the conspiracy, you know, guru here, yeah. like I'm sure you're tracking this. What is your take on all of this? Because my mind is just, it is blowing up every day. I swear to God. My, my take is maybe I didn't move enough farther away. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, do you have room in your house, Jared? Is there any more room? <laughs> so, well, here, here's what's interesting to that. Um, I talked with my friend yeah. here who got his haircut and said, man, our whole conversation was about Trump. This was in a Scottish barbershop. Um, <laughs> I've had multiple conversations this week with Scots, right? About, about us, our politics, about Trump. Yeah. Um, and even, even yeah. said, Hey, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi's at fault for January 6th. Right. So I'm, and, and again, like engaging with this, I'm like, you're, you're not American, but, and I think this, this is part of the answer to your question. I did not hear Marjorie Taylor Greene was labeled an establishment, uh, which I find that ironic. Um, but I think it illustrates what I'm about to say. Yeah. Our yeah. digital ecosystem, media, uh, space, whatever you want to call it, two things about it. We, are experience, we experience cultural change and a cultural cycle closer and closer together than we've ever experienced. Mm. Um, no. I, the way I liken it is, and you know, if you're not, none of us have done this, but again, when we were trying to break the sound barrier, uh, and I say we as America, right. <laughs> when, when we, when we were doing that in the air force, they were concerned that the stress of the plane, it would, it would break because of the speed and, and all that. And it did. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of what it's like to be in this, our, our politics are only part of maybe much more, larger problem is that we're all sort yeah. of like rattling uh, as, as, as the yeah. speed of cultural change increases at an exponential rate. So that's, that's the first thing. Yeah. And that's probably like a very meta, you know, broad approach, but I think it, it maybe set us in context of saying, look, these politics are down river of some really polluted water of our digital landscape. Yeah. But the second thing about our digital landscape is that it is increasingly a site for the next front of warfare, cognitive warfare. Yeah. Now that's taking your yeah. podcast off into a whole nother direction. But what people need to know is that mm. we will increasingly start to see viral videos that are propaganda from foreign governments. Um, so that in mm. a lot of ways, what our older generations maybe talked about in the fifties and sixties and mass mind control and things like that. We're having to reckon with the advent of this. What was at first a democratization of information, the free range internet mm. where you could put a Thai beanie baby on eBay and everyone was just loving it. And it was great. And you all, you, right. your only stress, and I'm speaking as a nostalgic nineties kid, your, your only stress was, you know, what lyric right. am I going to put on my AIM tonight? Right. I, that, that was it. Well, what we're finding though, is that not, Hell just, yeah. not, not just foreign governments. And again, this is research that's coming out of the DOD. This is research that, that sociologists and political scientists are talking about. So this is not conspiratorial in, in, in that sense is that the digital space is a is another dynamic of warfare air yeah. sea land space digital uh and so hmm. this is all coalescing into a very very chaotic moment and so you know you ask about the where i think the republican party is going and i'm given i'm given a much 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 bigger picture but i think it's important because what it does implicate is where does the church find itself in all of this? 
Because sometimes yeah. this is where I've gone back and read Bonhoeffer because people forget that before he was, before he was involved in disrupting Hitler and involved in a conspiracy against Hitler, he was contending with nationalism in the church. And, and, yeah. and, and evangelicals love to talk about Bonhoeffer, uh, this, this almost like the assassin, which is a, is a blatant misrepresentation of what he was attempting to do. Um, but we conveniently kind of put aside the fact that he was contending with some of the very same streams and strains that we seem yes. to be forgetting. Yes. And, 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 and I, I, I say that because I don't always like the very quick comparison to, Oh, things like now are like Nazi Germany then. And, and there's a sense in which that's not true. Right. But there's also a sense in which right. we have forgotten uh, where the church is forgets. It's de- being determined by Christ. We forget that we don't need to be determined by these politics, but we become captive and determined by them. So you ask about the Republican party, you know, you know what I would settle for? And this isn't settling, but I would, I want to imagine a church that doesn't rehearse the same fights that the Republican party is rehearsing. If you look at yeah. conservative yeah. denominations in the States, whatever the Republican party is doing today are the same similar battle lines that are getting drawn in denominations. There's no, there's no difference. Yeah. There's no way to think differently. Yeah, right. It's it's literally a train track. And to quote Bonhoeffer again, repenting does you no good if you just walk back a train heading in a different direction. Like you have you have to get yeah. off the train. You you have to get off the train. Right. Um, and so that yeah. that's kind of the broader picture of what I think the Republican Party is showing us that maybe we're not noticing. And a bigger question of yeah. hey, when is the church going to I say the church? The church is not captive to the Republican Party there's a very particular evangelical tradition that is captive to it. There are faithful Christians in the country who've been trying to tell us this for 400 years. And, and we, we we have not listened. Uh, And yet we have been the one in power. So what are you going to do with that? Um, uh, Listen, a a thousand percent, you know, people a lot of times, and I I get why sometimes they think that um, we just hate Christianity or that we hate the church because we critique evangelicalism so heavily. But, it's actually quite the opposite. Like mm-hmm. we love the church. We love the Christian tradition. I am a radicalized Jesus follower. Like I can't escape that. You know, those, those neuronic pathways have been built. They're not going anywhere. Right. What is concerning is, and I agree with you, Jared, I try to avoid the, Oh, this is just like Nazi Germany. Yeah. However, <laughs> there are some ingredients, yeah. right? Like if mm-hmm. you start looking at like maybe how the Nazi party came into power, um, newsflash, they didn't say, hey, we want to kill Jewish people. Right. Uh, they started a little bit different than that. Right. And they used propaganda and they used certain cultural moments and situations to build up this narrative that eventually made a lot of people in the country okay mm-hmm. with you know placing stars on Jewish people. Right. Now, obviously, the um, I don't think that we are necessarily uh, on that same exact path. But when you see some of the same ingredients being used of propaganda and you see how the media has been, been used by these almost like um, they're, they build their own ecosystem, right, to push um, propaganda. When you see people storming the Capitol building, when you see people saying, not my president, Trump's the true president, when you see churches involved with organizations like Turning Point USA and having Charlie Kirk speak at your church, you do have to wonder, like, haven't we been here before? Aren't there like moments in history that we can learn from? And people often say, 
and I'm so guilty of this. I mean, I used to do this all the time, right? You read, you read the, about, about the Israelites in, in, in Exodus. You're like, oh, they were so dumb. How do they not see what they were doing was so wrong? God did a, they, God parted the Red Sea. But that is arrogance because you look around now in our own life and we could say the same thing about people, myself included, that at points I just didn't see what I didn't see. Yeah. Yep. And so I think that we really are in a, listen, every generation, all right, has unique problems for their cultural yep. moment. I don't think this is like, you know, that we are in um, necessarily unprecedented territory. Mm-hmm. I would say the expression of what we're in is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. The expression of the ingredients that we've seen throughout history with the social media phenomena and the digital phenomena, a different world than Nazi Germany, right? Mm-hmm. This is uncharted territory. And I think it's so key for Christians, especially the ones with, who hold most of the power, to really be thinking uh, do I, as a Jesus follower, am I called to become the empire mm-hmm. or am I called to subvert the empire? Right. And right now, I think there are a lot of people with a lot of power who have convinced themselves that as Christ followers, they are called to become the empire. Right. And my God, Jared, we've been here before, both yep. in scripture and throughout history. It does not end well right. for anyone the church included. So I will say it definitely concerns me about the current trajectory. And I think now more than ever, people have to build coalitions that are broader than maybe what they're comfortable with to say, hey, listen, can we at least get back to having a democracy that we can still argue in? And then, you know, we can go back to all of our fighting and, you know, who's right about this and that and pushing for the rights that we need people to have. But like, is it possible to say, listen, can we just like spit shake on this and say, okay, can we call a truce and like just make sure that we still have a freaking, you know, um, pluralistic society left over where people's rights are protected? That's kind of where I'm at with when it comes to this particular topic is like I will build connections with whoever I can to make sure that people like Trump and all of that world are as far away from political power as humanly possible. And then I'll start giving my critiques about, you know, their conservative stance on right. the Bible or inerrancy or something like that, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, I, we have, how do, how do I say this? There is, well, today, today's the feast day of Augustine. So I'll just, I'll just say that, um, a buddy of mine who had the Trump conversation at a Scottish barber is a huge Augustine guy. And he reminded me of this today. Hmm. And one of my favorite quotes from Augustine, uh, is actually in a sermon on prayer. And, uh, and, and Bonhoeffer famously said, there's only two ways to be Christian today. Uh, and that's prayer and doing justice among human beings. And, and Bonhoeffer mm. was not, he didn't have the opportunity to talk about preserving his political order. He was actively attempting to dismantle it so that they could have a future. Um, but Augustine has this great refrain in his a sermon on prayer where he said, uh, you know, people say bad times and hard times. Um, that's what people are saying. And you remember he was writing that during the fall of Rome and, and he said, uh, but let us live well and, and the time will be well. He said, we are the times, the way that we live such as we are, such are the times. And that mm-hmm. may strike some of your listeners as, you know, insanely way too optimistic. Um, it may strike them as, as fanciful and, and, and you're entitled to that. I, what I, what I get from that, um, is really this this sense of freedom and responsibility that mm. for maybe the first time we those of us who have lived in these spaces and breathed this air are now tasting the air of responsibility and it doesn't it doesn't mean possibility 
right? Like, just like you're saying, like, there's a lot of things that we could possibly spend our time doing and freedom in America has always been freedom to, to do an enormous number of things. But now our generation, this collective moment of these generations together in this moment, we're being met, not just with possibilities, but maybe a particular responsibility. And, and that yeah. doesn't involve multiple choices that involves a freedom to choose one thing. And, and so that, that's, I think that's what, that is actually what excites me. That's not a, that's not easy. That's not, that's not comfortable, but it is purposeful. And it's something that uh, is worth spending your life towards. Um, and, and let me put it this way. You talked about being a radical Christian. Maybe it's the only way to be Christian, right? Like mm. that's, that's yeah. the only way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is easy, easy for you to say you're in Scotland right now. So, you know, I will, I will, I'll just give I will, you a hard no, time. No, 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 no. I'll take the I've been gone, man. I've been gone. <laughs> um, so I, you, 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 we already kind of hinted at this for your third reason. I'm just going to summarize it. Maybe we can sure. dig in a little bit longer and then I'll, I'll let you go and we can uh, kind of wrap it up. But you said, you know, the third reason that you changed your mind was January 6th and the big lie was AstroTurf among evangelicals. And you yep. mentioned that uh, Charlie Kirk's a member of the CNP. Um, the president and CEO of Salem Media um, is part of the CNP, um, which he and, or that organization, over they push out most of the right-wing talk that, that you see or hear, friends, right. comes from the Salem Media Group. Okay, they're a huge name. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you here, you know, on this part. And I, again, I, I don't know, listen, I, I don't know the exact audience makeup of this show. I'm assuming there are some people who listen to us who think that we are just over the top and we're this Marxist conglomerate of trying to destroy the Christianity. But again, I always go back to the same thing. Like, like there's data here, you know, like when you have um, a January 6th commission, when you have conservative judges, when you have people inside Trump's own administration who were like, yeah. This thing, this whole thing was manufactured and there's no precedent to it. At that point, you're really left with like one of two options. You either start believing that, hey, maybe among all these separate institutions and people who have no reason to lie, maybe I'm missing something mm -hmm. or you double down and continue to create a land of delusion in your mind where everything that you believe is right and the truth and everything else cannot enter that. And mm -hmm. frankly, I understand and I'm, I'm talking to you, Mr. or Miss, you know, evangelical out there who's listening to this. I understand why you would think that because, frankly, as an evangelical who grew up um, in that world, you are conditioned pretty early to suspend logic, right? Um, a serpent talked in the garden definitely happened. People lived to be 900 years old. That's normalized. Adam and Eve were the first two humans on the earth who magically appeared through the dust and then someone else's rib. And then they somehow populated the entire planet. No problems, right? So I'm not telling you that I think that you're dumb. I'm just saying that I understand how you're conditioned to suspend how, how you're conditioned to suspend data in light of a myth or in light of a story. Now, those biblical things I mentioned are all very complicated, and we can dig into that at a whole different conversation. But my point is that when you are when you have no problem believing that without thinking about the logical implications of what it's actually saying, I understand how many people can say, well, there's a deep state out there. Still don't know who exactly is in the deep state or where they live or how they're organized because it's not really a thing. Um, and they have conspired to rig the election, not by like 10 votes or a thousand or even a hundred thousand, but by millions of votes. Right. And even to this day, we have no actual evidence of those ballots besides a few normal examples of fraud that happens every single election. Okay. Every single election. I can understand how in light of that, it's easier for you to believe the narrative or the myth 
that Trump is draining the swamp and there's a deep state cabal trying to destroy him and America. I get that. Yep. What I would ask of you, dear listener, who's that person, is to really ask yourself, okay, does anything I see in reality have merit for what is actually true? Meaning, if you read through some of the court cases, if you hear some of these stories and you hear people who, again, were Trump supporters in his own cabinet saying, yeah, we knew early on that the data wasn't there, that, that, that Trump lost the election. Does that have any bearing for you as someone who lives in the same reality that we do? Does it have any effect on how you think about this stuff? If it doesn't, I would challenge you to question why you think that way. I would question, I would, I, that's all I would say. I would just challenge you to ask yourself, why do I think that way? Why am I so okay with ignoring data and believing this narrative that has so little to no data behind it? What is driving that? I can't answer that for you, only you can. That's my little caveat to my audience out there who maybe doesn't like our content but listens anyway. So thank you for listening, by the way. It means a lot. And I hope that you respect what I'm saying to you. I don't think that you're unintelligent or dumb or stupid. I'm just asking you to re-examine your own beliefs and how you got there. That's just being a good human, in my opinion. So that being said, Jared, you know, as we start kind of landing this plane here, um, my question for you is, what do you think it will take to maybe change some of these narratives? How do we combat this stuff without getting back in the mud? I think one of the struggles for people in, we'll just say not far right spaces, because I think it's bigger than just the left, right. um, is that we can very easily get into a dehumanization mm -hmm. war. We can very easily get back in the mud. Right. We, some people spin their own propaganda. I mean, I'm not sure if you saw the video. I critiqued it. Joe Biden, um, after the RNC debate, played this video of all the candidates and they were like raising their hand like consistently and underneath was like different captions like like I want to outlaw all abortion they all raise their hand I want to cut social security I want to I want they all raise their hand but it was a looping it was a loop a looping video of the same footage of all of them raising their hand trying to make it seem like like like, like they were all in agreement on those things mm -hmm. even though during the debate they actually weren't yeah. some of those candidates did not want a federal abortion ban for example right. i was like this is bad like this this is misleading information right fighting fire with fire doesn't happen at the same level right but you get my point so my question to you i know i'm long-winded here thank you really? for listening to me it is you, you are me. the guest but here i am ranting <laughs> but my, my my question for you uh jared is ultimately how do we bring the hose to the mud pit. Yeah. You know, how do we start cleaning these people off? How do we start being part of the solution and not getting in the mud and making things way more gross than they need to be? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the question. And I, I probably get that. Um, and I've changed, I've actually changed my answer again on that. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it, here, here's what I'll say, because I've, I've actually ended up, I don't know precisely what this is called, but um, in martial arts and there's, I think it might be jujitsu in one where, where you take your opponent's momentum and you use it against them. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and, and judo, judo is really big for doing that. There you go. So judo, um, it's called a judo throw. So, so that when we have that in mind, here's what I'm going to suggest. Let me start with a, a almost like a, a question. Cause what you were talking about with Mr. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Evangelical, I resonate with. And I think the question you were asking, cause you've done this for me too, is it almost sounded to me like, is, ask yourself, what do you lose when you, you when you stop believing in in this election? Like, what's mm. lost for you? And I think sometimes yeah. what what um, evangelicals, the, the spaces that I grew up in, what is actually unnamed in that is that it's tied to Jesus. It's tied to a characterization of who Jesus is, and and so the challenge that and here's what is missing 
from our legislated fact-checking disinformation analysis that conservatives rail against as censorship. I'm not saying there's no place for this, but here's what's missing from it. Evangelicals are one of the largest, white evangelicals are one of the largest embracers of QAnon. Almost one in five or almost one in four. Right. Believe some huge. part of QAnon. And, and, and that has actually stayed consistent over the time I've been here. That they've tracked that and that stayed consistent. What, what, what disinformation analysis will never do is it can't see a connection between a theological belief and conspiracy theory. It, it, it doesn't do it. And, and what ends up happening is they say, well, you, you already believe something crazy. <laughs> so of course you're going to believe X, Y, Z. And, and what that, I mean, that, that's pathologizing people and that's its own ironically dehumanizing move. And so let me bring it back to that Mr. and Mrs. Evangelical and say, look, if you were outside Jerusalem in 30 AD and you were a normal person coming into the city to hawk your wares, right? And you, you walked by this yeah. hill and this hill always has crosses on it. So nothing was out of the ordinary on this day to see more insurrectionists. The thieves next to Jesus were not just petty thieves. They were insurrectionists. They were political criminals. That's, that's who got crucified, right? You in your social world would have no reason, zero, 0.9999 in a, no, no, just 0% to interpret what you were seeing as the death of the son of God. So even if you were totally, purely, historically rational, you could witness the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth and would still not be able to interpret that as salvation. And, and there, mm. there are so many barriers to that there, but, but, but the churches I grew up in, right. Placed everything. My whole faith was stocked in this really happened in history. Now it, I believe it did. I believe that the, what we're talking about is not just a body vanishing, but a historical event. Right. But the meaning of it, is really a matter of faith. And it's a matter of interpreting something as having a meaning that is not readily apparent from just witnessing it. Mm. So here, here's where it gets interesting yeah. with conspiracy theory, because you talk about how do we contest with this? Well, we have to be able to contest it in the church without giving up our core conviction of who Jesus is. But what's happened is it has been so tied to that. The people who believe Trump is the, the you know God's gift to America and that believe America is this divine nation that has to rule the world and create this empire, this is all bound up in 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 a ideological character of Jesus Christ. So to begin again means actually, ironically, evangelicalism has always been known as being really apocalyptic. But all apoc mm -hmm. all apocalyptic yes. means is disclosure. And that's what conspiracy theories attempt to do. They attempt to disclose something that was previously hidden. And what I'm yeah. doing is I'm suggesting to Mr. and Mrs. Evangelical is to say that if, if you believe that this is the quote unquote end times, um, might I suggest that you're actually not being apocalyptic enough? Because if, if you really understood and really grappled with who Jesus is and what that has meant, then you would very clearly see that what happened at January 6th is the absolute antichrist of the Jesus that we have been disclosed through the church's witness throughout mm -hmm. time. And so here's what I'm doing, yeah. Tim. I'm trying to, to fight conspiracy theories using the church's language. 
I'm trying to fight it yes. using theological speech to say, hey, the the disinformation analysis is important through our social media sphere and the digital spaces. But what it's never going to do is it's never it's only going to start a theological crisis and it can never resolve it. And we have to be able to find a way as the church to say, hey, something theological is going on here and we have to do it with theology. We can't do it without it. Um, and so that's basically what I'm kind of beginning to like distill and stretch out and, and work out because what I'm getting after is if apocalypse is just this disclosure of who God is and what God has done in the world, then the implication of that is that everything else is provisional. Everything else is temporary. And if we really understood that, we wouldn't be tying our, our car to this train towards dominion, towards violence, towards all of these things. Why? Because what happened at the cross wasn't the end. It was the beginning. Evangelicalism's apocalypse mm-hmm. is all wrong. We've been obsessed with the end, not with what Jesus has started. The radical Christianity you're talking about is, is newness. <laughs> it's, not, it's not paranoia. It's, it's a beginning. Yeah. So uh, again, yeah. some of your listeners, this is probably going to rattle you. And if, so if, if I'm rattling your rapture anxiety, like I, I apologize, this is not my intention. I'm, I'm kind of putting some really heavy T-bone steak maybe on the table. And just saying, hey, maybe we actually haven't been apocalyptic enough. We actually haven't considered yeah. that like the end of Jesus on the cross was actually the beginning of something that that in light of everything else, we can no longer give ourselves to petty tyrants like Donald Trump. Yeah. I have no interest in advocating for a sexual ethic that is really just about saving Western civilization and is more concerned with the birth rate than whether right. or not the Church of Jesus Christ is really loving everybody. I'm not attracted to that. Because it's not, it's not Jesus. But yeah. behind all of this is this sense that we've got to survive. We've got to have a strategy to make it. Yeah. And the real Christian apocalypse, what God has really unveiled and will eventually unveil totally, is that it's never been anything that we could do. And Tim, doesn't this sound so evangelical? <laughs> so evangelical. <laughs> like that's full circle, man. That's it's, yeah. it's 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 shocking to me how unevangelical evangelicalism has become. And and we have been I, I, obsessed I, with the entirely wrong type of apocalypticism. We have to be more apocalyptic, not less. And th- that is a pregnant statement that demands more explanation that we don't have time for. But you asked me, like, no, I, how am I dealing with yeah. this? And and that's yeah. that's me. There's other ways to do this. There's so many, there's so many ways to do it, but I'm looking at it in the church among people who believe this stuff because they believe in Jesus. You know, we assume people believe conspiracy theories because they're falling away from Jesus. I'm actually saying, no, they're believing it precisely because what they believe about Jesus. And we got it. We have to deal with that. We have to deal with that. Um, Yep. Yep. I have nothing more, much, I don't have much more to add to that. I agree. I got got on. I, 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 dude, you need to because I, I, we need to reaffirm for people. I think this is why our work, in some ways, is a little more unique. That our take on this stuff is that, um, like these people aren't acting how they taught us to act, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, like in so many ways. Obviously, it's a more nuanced conversation, but there are so many times where I'm like, wait, but you taught me that I shouldn't be anything like Trump, but now you want me to vote for him, and if I don't, I'm a bad Christian, like. I'm just scratching my head like that doesn't add up, right? So right. I agree. In a lot of ways, 
how evangelicals are behaving now, and it depends on on what frame you're looking yeah, through or sure, what lens you're looking through. But in in, in, its, in its own way, I understand how people can be like, "This is nothing like what I grew up in." And then also, I can understand how as you do a deeper dive, like, "Oh, actually, uh, I didn't realize it, but this stuff was kind of constructed to be this way." You know, exactly. so it's it's a complicated conversation. Brent. There's a lot of end. nuance here. But it can I, absolutely be both. I, I can see both ends exactly. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, listen, Jared, I appreciate you making time and, and emailing me saying, I've changed my mind. Let's go. Let's have another conversation. I'm like, hell yeah, Jared, let's do it. So thank you for your work. Thank you for the work Thanks that you're doing. Me. Where can folks follow you? Are, are you on, you know, are you on, is it, what's it called? Uh, Exwitter now or, or threads or Instagram? Like what's, yeah, what's the word? Know, Where are you? I don't know. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the site formerly known as Twitter. Uh, you can find me Jared Stacy oh, okay. there. Um, um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Jared M Stacy there. Uh, I write on Substack. I have a website too that you can follow me on um, and see some of my stuff Great. there. So yeah, awesome. Well, Jared, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. <laughs>